The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Okay, we are live. You know, been a rough week. In a real rough week. Josh Strickland uh, emailed Matt and myself and said he needed more content. And I am obligated to do this one. I don't know if I'll make it through this one. I'm concerned. So I'm not really one to, <laughs> you know, break down show emotions unless I'm fired up about something, but this one is going to be tough. Um, some people in this world we love by obligation and some people in this world we love by choice Jerry Dowdy was somebody who I definitely loved by choice he was a father figure to me and he passed away on May 11th and I'm coming off trials I've been all over the state the last week, and um, I didn't. I kind of toyed with doing this one, but in one of my last conversations with Jer, which was a couple days before he passed, um, he wanted me to tell our story. And I know a lot of people in Jersey have asked me to kind of pay a tribute to Jerry, and I think I owe that to him because he did so much for me. So, this is not going to be your usual um, Facebook Live. This is going to be me telling the story of my friend Jerry Dowdy from 18 years old to modern day and the role he played in my life. And as I have to start, um, I'm Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates and this is the story of Jerry Dowdy. So, I first met Jer when uh, I was 18. I'm an 18-year-old kid living in Atlantic City. And I became a bar porter at Tropicana. And as a bar porter, um, that's the equivalent of like what a busboy would be to a waiter. And one of my first assignments was Kitchen Service North. That's where Jerry worked. Jerry was a day one bartender at Tropicana. And Jerry had a different personality. And I had a different personality. We connected almost instantly. And my good friend Joanna Raggio said... It was actually Joanna who texted me at like 4 o'clock in the morning saying she was sorry Jerry died. We knew he was dying and she got the news before I did. And uh, she said how Jerry and I were both alike because we didn't let many people in. And we connected. And I guess that's true. I think sometimes with the lives and the podcast I'm trying to like have a little more vulnerability. But where we come from... You always got, like, this protection mechanism, the whole fight mentality, right? And Jerry got that. He understood that. And I'm 18 years old, and he taught me how to bartend. And 
being Jerry's bar porter for a couple months was a better education than anything I ever learned in college or law school. Jerry taught me about life. He taught me how to bartend to help my family. He helped mold me into a man. He just, he got me. You know, he knew I was different. Like, I'd be the 18-year-old kid running around with his college books, reading a novel for an English report in the cafeteria, nobody else was trying to get laid, and we just connected. He just taught me so much. And the one thing he used to say to me is, don't get stuck here. And here's what he meant by that. He made a great living bartending. But he knew for me, if I ended up bartending in Atlantic City for life, I was really going to just hate life. And from the earliest of days, he was pushing law school on me, and I'm very grateful for that. College was interesting. Of course, here was my experience in college. It wasn't frat parties and stuff like that. You know, I was working 40 hours a week, sometimes more, taking 16 credits. And he was there telling me to take different shifts where I could study more. He was like this mentor, you know? And some of the stories we're going to tell tonight, they're funny. But um, some of them are emotional. The one thing I want to stress is that we have a guy who didn't owe me a f***ing thing, you know? He didn't owe me shit. And he took me under his wing. And he wasn't somebody to let a lot of people in. But uh, he did let me in, and I always appreciate that. And in college, he um, he was somewhat concerned. He told me... We would tell stories about different dates I was on and stuff like that. And now he's like the father figure, big brother. And I would tell him some situations. And he used to say to me, you have a knack for picking women that are very pretty but seem crazy. I hope you get control of that. (laughs) There was in college one day and I'm on a date with this girl and... I guess it didn't go well. She got pissed off me about something. And, uh... And I'm... I'm driving her home. And... It was raining outside. She had an umbrella with her. And at the end of the night... She was mad. She goes, do you want to come up? And I said, no, I'm good. Thanks. Forget what happened. Maybe she was drinking too much or something. But she just annoyed the hell out of me. And she took an umbrella and she cracked the side of my window. And um, that was really weird, right? So I'm telling Jerry this story and he's laughing his ass off. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I hope you're done with her. I'm like, well, well, no, I'm not, we're not done. It's just I told her not to crack my window again. And he just starts laughing his ass off. And this was a sign of things to come. He was such a voice of reason, but he's also one of these people where you learn later in life that um, 
some of our greatest times together was at my expense. He was making fun of me. And he did it in such a way it was like honoring me almost. When the LSAT came, the LSAT was brutal for me. Because, you know, a lot of you guys know that dyslexia was a real, it was brutal. And I just couldn't get over the LSAT. And I couldn't get in anywhere. It was just getting turned down from law school after law school. And I remember I was at that point where I was just almost giving up. Um, I was involved in union politics and I thought maybe politics and teaching and coaching were going to be a way for me. I don't know, but this law school thing is simply not going to happen. And I was bartending at Top of the Trap one night and Jared comes up and he goes, how are you holding up? And he could just read in my face. It was just like emotional exhaustion, you know? I really just didn't think law school was going to happen. And I was close to throwing in the towel. And he said to me, somebody's going to take a chance on you. You can't give this thing up. If you do, you're going to hate yourself. And he said something which was really powerful. And this is how you know somebody truly cares about you. Because if you leave New Jersey, I'm going to miss you every day. We're going to talk on the phone. We'll always be bonded. He goes, but if you stay in New Jersey, even though I personally would love to see you every day, I don't want to see how that's going to tear you up inside. And he patted me on the back. He goes, you're going to get this. Keep fighting. And, um, yeah. That was a big moment in time. I think I might have given up if it wasn't for Jerry. Because, you know, family... Aunt Mare and Mom, I love them so much, you know? Wouldn't be here without them, obviously. But when they're your blood, there's some bit of an obligation. You know, there's a little bit of an obligation there. He didn't have that obligation. He worked his ass off that night. He came up to see me at top of the trap. It was slow. I'm out of it. I'm close to giving up. And he's telling me, and remember this in life. He's telling me that even though he would love me to stay in Jersey, maybe leaving is what I need to do. That was powerful. One of those moments in time that you will look back on the rest of your life. Because at that point in life, I'm down. I'm depressed. I can't get the fuck into law school. I'm dating the wrong girls, and I'm at a job I don't like. And if somebody I looked up to, like Jerry, would have said, you know what, B? You took a shot accept your station in life and just be happy with it I may have just thrown in the towel I don't know but he told me to keep pushing he didn't have to and he did so eventually Cooley took me 
And when I told him, coolly took me, you know, and Jerry was always real frugal with money. Let's be clear. He would call Jerry cheap, but he was really frugal with money. But I told him I'm going to Michigan, and he put a couple hundred bucks in a card for me, and he says, here's some gas money for you. Call me when you get there. I know you're going to do great things. And my first call at Jumpstart, Jumpstart was orientation at Cooley on our break. I was calling Jerry. And I'm like, man, this Michigan place is f***ing weird. <laughs> we just laughed about things, and, you know, it was good having that person to just pick up the phone there. And he was there that first term of law school. First term of law school was different because week six, week six or week seven, um, I was on a leave of absence from Tropicana. And I had to make a decision. My midterm grades weren't great. But it was time, do I go back to Jersey or um, do I give up my seniority number? And Jerry's like, don't even think about coming back here. You're going to be fine. A lot of other people were saying, you know, just come back. And you learn that a lot of people, people who I cared for, were definitely rooting against me. Jerry wasn't. And I got two calls before, um, there were two phone calls that stick out for me before my first finals, finals week, first term at Cooley, which was December of 2004. And there were two people I looked up to. Jerry was one, and there was another person from Tropicana. I won't mention her name. And the one person from Trop who I held in high esteem said to me, as his eighth shot of Johnny Black was going down as esophagus, I'm sure, that um, you're going to fail out of law school, you should have never left, ha-ha, we're rooting against you. And Jerry and I were on the phone late night, and it was, it was hurtful to hear the other person say that at the time, I'm a kid. And Jerry's like, f*** him, you got this. He goes, remember, you're in a game. He goes, one first down at a time, kid. One first down at a time. You're going to take control of these finals. You're going to do this. And this was like a 2.30 in the morning conversation. And finals start at 8 a.m. I just remember sitting in my room. I'm at this little air mattress at Washington Apartments. I'm on the phone with Jer. And I'm scared out of my mind. I want to fail out of law school. And he had, was this calming influence, you know. And, again, he didn't owe me anything. But the thing about Jerry was, um, when the chips were down, he just always knew the right thing to say. He always did. He just did. You know, I made some notes here. The next two things are a transition. Because, um, one, I'm going to kind of relive a very difficult thing. And then one's going to be very comical. And they were kind of close in time to each other. But, um, 2007, mom was dying of ovarian cancer. And it was, it was going to end, you know. 
didn't know what to do. Um, she was hanging on. She was fighting. Mom was a fighter. Get a lot of that from mom. I didn't know if I should take the term off. I talked to the doctors. And the doctor's like, well, she could hang on for, you know, another few months. This could happen, that could happen. I know what to do with my financial aid at the time. And I didn't know what to do. I did, wanted to be there for mom. And I was at the end. At the very end, I was there and took two weeks off from law school and finished my term. So I called them. Like, what do you think I should do? He's like, well, you got to keep pushing right now. You just got to. He goes, look, Billy, I'm sorry. She's going to die. You got to face her. You've done everything for your family. But if you just leave law school right now, I don't know what's, how that's going to affect you. You can't stop. He goes, and you got to work through the pain right now. And he was right, because when I was studying, when I was practicing those multiple choice and all that, I wasn't thinking about mom dying. And he was um, definitely my therapist during that time period. And, you know, mom passed, and I don't know if I would have made it through that time period as well without Jer. I'm sure I wouldn't have. But he was there. But, you know... Shortly after that, there was another situation, and this is kind of funny. And there was a situation involving Jerry, Scott Zolber, and Facebook. So I'm back in Jersey for term break. And um, there was a girl I was real serious with. And... My inner circle knows the story. Um, she left me for a much older guy. Who had a lot of money at the time. And she was getting married to him. And things got really weird when she was about to get married. Um, things got really weird. So. I'm on a computer at Jerry's house during term break. So whenever we had term break, I would go spend time with Jerry. We'd go out to dinner. We'd hang out. So one day, me, Jerry, and Scott Zolber are hanging at his place, and I'm on Facebook, and I click messages, and it says wedding video and champagne high. And Jerry's like, what is that? Like, oh, nothing. So Zolber looks, he goes, I know what it is. So my ex... She got married, and she sent me, like, this video she made of her wedding. It was very odd. And she sent me the song Champagne High, and Champagne High is this amazing song by Sister Hazel. Now, the thing about Champagne High is it's about a guy watching Love of His Life marry somebody else, and he's really sad about it. The weird thing is this girl was sending me the video of her wedding after she broke up with me. It was very odd. So I went to use the bathroom. I said, I don't worry about it. So Scott Zolber jumps on the computer 
and he puts it on Jerry's big screen. And they're sitting there watching, and they're watching my ex's wedding video with the Champagne High song dubbed over it. I mean, she put a lot of effort into this. She's she's different. And um, so Jerry's watching, and he's drinking Heineken. And when Jerry got a little bit of beer in him, he was funny as sh- like Seinfeld level, right? Now, quite often it was at my expense, but it was pretty good. So, in the video, he sees my ex and this old guy, and he says, she looks nothing like her father. I said, that's her husband. (laughs) And Zorber's like laughing his ass off. And then there's these videos, and she's, like, dancing with her girls, and she puts on glasses. Now, everybody always knows, like, I like this fetish for glasses, right? Like, a girl with glasses, if it was a six, they became an eight if they had glasses on. I always had a thing for glasses. And she puts these glasses on the video, and she's dancing with her glasses on. And Jerry goes, where the f*** those glasses come from? I said, oh, she, she's basically, like, spiking the football in my face right now. And he's just laughing his ass off. Jerry... And Scott Zolber are laughing, saying, Billy, you picked the craziest women in the fucking world. This lunatic dubbed over a video of her wedding and sent it to you after she broke up with you, marrying the old guy, and we just laughed our ass off about it. If there's one thing I take peace in right now, it's knowing that... Up there, where I believe Jerry is, Scott Zolber and my dog Max are waiting for him. They're greeting him. They're having a good steak, drinking some beer, and making fun of me down here while watching over me. It's so hard to believe they're all gone, but the wedding video, that was, that was a funny moment. A not so funny moment was a New Jersey bar exam. I didn't really want to go back to Jersey, but I felt I had to take the New Jersey bar. To me, it was like finishing an obligation I had. And Jerry was friends with somebody who was a nice guy, intellectual, PhD. And one night, they're having dinner together, and Jerry's friend tells him, Bill's a really hard worker, but he'll never pass New Jersey bar on the first try. And Jerry was, he had a temper, but it took a lot to get it out of him. And he almost came to fisticuffs with the guy. Now, Jerry was cheap, he was tight with money, but he told the guy, I got $10,000, that says Billy passes the bar on that first f***ing try. And the guy goes, well, I'm not going to bet you. And he goes, then shut the f*** up. Don't ever badmouth Bill. And this story got back to me. And he called me. And he's like, listen, all the negative energy people got about you, you go out there. You kick that bar's f***ing ass. Because you're not just doing it for you. You're doing it for every one of us that had to give up on a dream at some point. 
and it was such a surge of energy, you know? And I went in there, passed the Jersey bar in the first try, and, you know, and I said to Jerry afterwards, you know, I don't know if I want to practice in Jersey. I just don't know. And he says, who gives a f***, B? Because you got the option to do it now. He was right. So every year, I pay my fee to New Jersey Board of Bar Examiners and notify my insurance carried on license in New Jersey, just in case. There's a case there, but it was more, that was like me spiking the football. Things went weird at my first job. Some of you guys know that story, some of you guys don't. But they were weird, and... The economy sucked in 2008. And I remember Cooley wouldn't give me a $15 an hour job at the register's office. And um, the firm I worked with owed me all sorts of money. And I was taking care of my aunt. And uh, I had this idea for a tutoring company. And so I don't know what to do. And Jerry and I talked it over. And he's like, he says to me, pitch me your idea. And I pitched it to him. And I didn't know how long the economy was going to be in flux, but I was always good at tutoring. And he lent me $20,000 to start my tutoring company. And at that time, it was like all the money in the world. And I paid him back 30 <laughs> He got every dime back plus 10 but at that time, that twenty grand, it like, you know, saved my ass. And uh, we would talk all the time. He used to say to me, "Listen, you're doing okay with this tutoring thing, but he goes, one day, you're not going to have the responsibility of your aunt." Because I kept tutoring for a while because it was guaranteed money, and I was supporting my aunt. And uh, he said, you know, once Aunt Mary passes or she's on a better situation, you're going to give up this tutoring thing because I'm sure you'll finish your obligations, but you're going to do big things with law. And, you know, Hurricane Sandy hit back in Jersey and we lost our house in Ventnor. So I was actually paying for Aunt Mary's apartment in Absecon. That was a long, let me start with Hurricane Sandy, man. Aunt Mary passed away in 2015. Uh, Joanna Raggio picked me up at the airport. It was a stormy night in Philadelphia. Ran in the hospital. Um, Aunt Mary fought for a week. She passed. Every night, either on the phone or at Jerry's house at the end of being there for Aunt Mary all day. And he just... He got me through it. You know, and at this point, Aunt Mare and Mom are both gone. And I just felt like I'm probably never going to be back in Jersey again the same way. Whole family's dead now. And the house in Jersey, it was a really unique situation. Bought the house when I was 19 and paid the house off. And then Hurricane Sandy destroyed the house. And God love my aunt. 
she picked the wrong contractors. They embezzled the money in a lawsuit that took years. And we finally win this lawsuit, get this grant money, and they're going to build the house. And Jerry was my eyes and ears on that house. He was there all the time with the contractor. Made a lot of money on that house. Had a lot of battles with that house. And it, none, none of it would have happened if Jerry wasn't there. You cannot run a construction project in Michigan while working 80 hours as a lawyer with a house in Jersey. Without Jerry... Um, we wouldn't have made that money on the house, and that money changed everything. You know, and I don't know what I would have done if he wasn't there. It was, again, one of those moments, because we had an option, right? We could just sell the lot for a third of the money we made and walk away. Or we could fight through this project. But the only way to fight through this project would be have somebody on the ground, have a foot soldier there, and f***ing A, man. Jerry Dowdy was my goddamn foot soldier. He was there making sure that house was done correctly. It was his new project. He had my back. He always had my back. Later in life, he got really good with the internet. Started Googling stuff and all, and one of his favorite things in the world was to Google stuff on me. So when people say, oh, you like to Google, that came from Jerry. Jerry would always say, hey, I Googled you and I found this. During the Bobby Reyes tragedy, I won't even call it the case, I'll call it the tragedy. We talked on the phone every fucking night. Every night, he was one of the main things that kept me going. Sometimes it would be 10 minutes, sometimes it would be an hour and a half. They're doing this, they're doing that. U of M's threatening me with this, this is happening, that's happening. He used to say, they don't know where you came from. You got this. And every day, he would like be following the story and then call me up. And then he'd start texting, which was really cool, because when Jerry started texting... <laughs> That was, like, revolutionary for Jer, you know? It really was. And, um... He just got me through so much. And... Sunday morning phone calls... Were so huge. I would go for a walk... And just talk to Jer. And it was... Just, like, the voice of reason... He got really sick at the end. And he told me how he didn't want to fight anymore. You know. He said, Billy, I've had it. I just don't want to do this anymore. Um, I'm down to 100 pounds. I can't eat. I can't sleep. One of our last conversations... He said, I just wish they would put a bullet in me and end this shit. I'm in so much pain right now. And one of the strongest people I've ever met in my life just saying that, it was heartbreaking. And he said, what do you think? I said, you got to keep fighting. And you know, at the end, one thing I've learned 
at the end, we want people to stay alive for us, right? I look at Max. I started making big money towards the end of Max's life, and we did every experimental thing in the world. The last six months, at least, we kept Max alive for us. And he was happy, he was eating, but when it was time to go, he told us it was time to go. Jerry told me it was time to go. And that's one thing I always be bitter about Bobby Reyes, because Bobby never told us it was time to go. You have not made that decision, so... you. And that was one of the things we talked about. You know, and at the end, it was... It was tough hearing him on the phone. I would call. We talked about the Eagles. We talked about the draft. The Phillies. Crazy stories of my life. Rest assured, Jerry knew more than any confessional. He, Jerry, Max, and Scott Zolber could write a memoir about Bill Amadeo and destroy me. <laughs> These guys knew it all. Um... The last phone call was two days before he died. And I had been calling and he wasn't picking up and I was fearful, you know, that he had passed. And uh, you're checking your obituaries every day and you don't know what's going on. And uh, he picked up the phone. And he told me I only picked up because I saw your number. Because I don't have much time left, but I want to talk to you. And we talked briefly. You know, I told him how uh, we all loved him. I wouldn't be here without him. And uh, he said it meant a lot to him. He said, My family ever needs anything legally, just make sure you got their back. I said, Absolutely. <clears throat> and he told me to tell people about him. <laughs> it was one of the things he wanted. He wanted me to do a Facebook Live about him. And I told him, I don't know if I get through it, but uh, I'll try. And, uh, you know, I'm an old school wrestling fan, and recently Bobby Eaton died, and Jim Cornette, who was his manager, he did a podcast on him. He said it was the hardest thing he ever had to do, but he owed it to Bobby Eaton. So I definitely owe this to Jerry, and I hope I came through for you, Jerry. Because I'm not that uh, Atlantic Sea Edge everybody talks about. It's really not present at the fucking moment. I miss you a lot, man. And I don't know where I'd be without you. I don't know. But uh, I definitely love you and could never repay you for being something to me that so many people who were supposed to be there never were. You know. Having sex with a woman and getting them pregnant does not make you a father. Having someone's back and putting their needs before your own, that makes somebody a father. And you definitely were like a father figure to me. I love you, man. 
the jail visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is the jail visit on Shiawassee Radio. Tonight, I went to uh, play poker in Oakland County. Just in the mood to play some poker. I just wanted to get away from everything. Been a long week. And I um I sit down at the poker table and get talking to a few of the guys. And one of the guys knows me, or he saw me on the internet, whatever. You know, when I go to like play poker, I did everything to try to be anonymous. I just want to focus on my hands and you know play my pots, whatever. And he tells me about his cousin who actually got arrested that night when I go visit him in the Oakland County Jail and picked up a new client. And it was funny because um, he started talking to me a little bit, right? Big guy. And I'm walking out and I see him following me and I'm like thinking, oh man, this guy's going to try to rob me or something. That's Atlantic City, like horse tracks and poker rooms was always dangerous if you were like counting your money and I counted some money out and uh turns out I got a referral out of it so very interesting night so with that being said after the Oakland County jail visit I decided to go back to the office and work on a preliminary exam I got coming up and just bag out this eighth term thing let's about the eighth term Eighth term was, it was right after mom passed away. So it was really a transition. You know, you knew mom was going to pass, but you just didn't expect it. I mean, I guess you did, but I don't think you could really prepare for that. You guys know what I'm talking about. And I'm coming back to school, and I got a bunch of electives that term. And it was almost like going to be a one of the easiest terms I ever had at Cooley. You know, you had four electives. And electives at Cooley, at least back then, electives would be like normal courses somewhere else. I mean, you had to put in some work for electives. I remember I had sports law that term. Had to write like an 86-page thesis on something. But it was nothing, you know, it wasn't secure transactions. You know, it wasn't crim pro. It was... When you get to your eighth term, you know that you're going to take the bar. And bar prep was going to be a huge thing at this point. Eighth term was, um, it was a term of transitions, I call it. Remember, before the term started, I'm back in Jersey, right? And there were a couple people that meant a lot to me that uh, I took out to dinner during that term break. One was Father Sullivan. And Sully, uh, Sully was my childhood priest. And I think when you grow up strong Catholic, you know, you hold the priest in such high regard. I mean, Father Sullivan's story is well documented. He eventually um, admitted to molesting a child before he came to St. James. Why the Canada Diocese moved him from one place to another of our children's beyond me. And no, I was never molested by Father Sullivan. I'm fairly certain if I had been molested by someone and my family knew about it, they would have just burned the rectory down. My family, there was a disconnect there. Nobody was going to ever touch Billy. So let's be clear. People asked me, um, 
did Sully touch you? No, he didn't. And when I was taken out to dinner, I didn't know about that. Eventually, I lost big-time jobs defending Sully. Sully, man, that's, that's just a weird situation. I talk to my shrink about Sully sometimes. But we would go out to dinner, and uh, he's telling me how, you know, you, you know, you've proved these people wrong. You're a self-made man. Thanks. You know, he goes, you're going to make it through law school. Yep. Because I don't know if you're going to pass the bar. You're going to make it through law school. And let me tell you something, Billy. With your amount of intellect, graduating from law school, that's a big accomplishment for you. So don't beat yourself up if you can't pass the bar exam. Okay. Bought the dinner. We shook hands. And I remember I was like, I was marinating my mind like Sullivan doesn't think I could pass the bar exam. And there was this other guy. I won't mention his name. But I worked in the casino with him, and he was somewhat of a role model. This guy was a nice guy, but when he started drinking Johnny Black, he became scum of the earth. A little bit of liquor went in this guy, and like all the ass tendencies he probably fought throughout the day just came out of him. He was an evil, fucked up individual when he was drinking. And he used to brag about drinking Johnny Walker Black like he was accomplishing something great. I drink Johnny Black was his thing. And then as the scotch kept coming in, shit kept coming out. And one night, he just, he did a lot of stuff. I mentioned him before, but this particular night, I was um, playing poker at Tropicana. And this is one of the reasons I even did this blog tonight, thinking how poker comes full circle. Always like playing poker. And I used to go back to Trop because I worked there during term breaks and stuff. And I, I don't think I'll ever go back to Trop again. I mean, the people I'm close with at Trop are the people I choose to be. But, you know, I think it was like homecoming going back to Trop. Very strange situation. And he's there and he wants to grab dinner. And I'm like, okay. And he's drinking. And he kept saying, well, you know, it looks like you're going to pass law school. You know, so you surprised a lot of us. But I don't think you'll ever pass New Jersey bar exam. Now, two people I had looked up to at that point, who I don't even look at today. And people say, well, do you look down upon them today? No, I don't even look. You know, Sully's gone. He's dead. And this guy is just, he's kind of dead to me. They both kept making this big issue that I'm not going to pass the bar exam. I'm buying them dinner. I think we're friends. They're kind of role models. I don't know what the deal was, but he's not going to pass the bar. That was the theme of the night. Now, in those situations, guys, you got to remember this. When you're trying to move forward in life, do people really want to see you succeed? These guys could have easily gotten my head, and I'm thinking I'm not going to pass the bar exam. But what I did with these two was I thought to myself, huh? Well, fuck you. I started bar prep early. Eighth term was a time to take a break from your required classes. And I decided since these two quote-unquote supposed role models kept telling me I'm not going to pass the bar, I'm going to start bar prep now and stick it up their ass. Different mindset, okay? I'm not saying that's natural or healthy, but that's just what I was thinking. 
I was kind of outraged that they were saying these things to me when I was trying to do a nice deed. So bar prep took on like this whole mechanism of its own. I'm going to pass that fucking New Jersey bar on the first try. Bank on it. Like I knew that in my mind right then and there. It was going to be a mission in life. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, so I'm in Jersey and you know, you guys that know me, I don't club. Uh, to me, going to a poker room, which I don't do frequently, is about the extension of me going out. Just not really a club guy. Never been. It's just not me. But it was a weird term. Mom had just passed, and some people want me to go to the club, so we went to the Brigada. I forget what the club was called, but it was the big time club at the Brigada. It was the place everybody wanted to go to. And I'm sitting there, I'm buying a few people drinks, and I'm bored out of my mind. I mean, when I go to a club, I'm like looking for a TV to watch a ball game to put some money on it. Or I'm studying something on my phone. Like, I'll go to those social club settings. You know, I do that sometimes. I have to for business. I enjoy taking people to dinner. Where you can actually have conversation. But going to, like, a dance club, it's just never really been me. It wasn't me then. wasn't me now. never be me. But I'm there. And this one young woman I used to work with, she's drunk out of her mind. And, um, and she's, like, dating this younger kid. And this kid is like all steroid up. And she's got him whipped. I mean, she's got him completely whipped. And she wants to keep talking to me that night. And I'm like, I'm on half speed, you know. I'm not really paying attention to her. Um, texting a few people on my phone. Because back then, you know, we're talking like 2007. Uh, texting was really unique at that point. You know, like pressing three times to get to see it was a pain in the ass but i was texting people i wanted to talk to back in michigan you know and she's talking to me and going on and on and she throws me against the wall and just starts making out with me and here's this dude bigger than life coming at me and like i stepped to him and he was big and muscular but he also was kind of a pussy and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not even doing anything, and I'm going to catch a character and fitness issue. I can't wait to get the hell out of Jersey. So, the one role model who's a priest says I'm going to fail the bar. The other one says I'm going to fail the bar. This chick is sticking her tongue down my throat when I'm not even paying attention to things. Her boyfriend wants to fight me. Mom just passed away. I can't wait to start f***ing bar prep, man. Like, let me get the hell back to Michigan. Michigan became sanity for me. Think about that. Because you guys that watch me, you know, this is not always sane, right? But Michigan became sanity. That's how dysfunctional New Jersey was. So I get back to Cooley, and I'm banging through my electives. And I start studying bar prep way ahead of schedule. And... I took my first practice MBE, and it was horrible. horrible. I remember Holly Glazier said to me, Holly Glazier was in charge of bar prep back then. She goes, I don't think you're able to pass the bar. Um, your numbers are too low. I said, well, I haven't done torts in two years, so maybe that's part of the problem. A lot of negativity around there. So I was just busting my ass, studying every day, 
everybody that put me down. Motivation, motivation, motivation. Remember this. When people you like, respect, or even people you don't like, people get in your head. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do shit. You have to use that for motivation. Most people want to break you down. It's not right. It's not fair, but it is. So you got to fight back when that happens. And I just got sick of hearing I can't pass this bar exam. I mean, we know how that story ends. But, you know, at the time, a lot of barriers there. And sometimes when people are training people to take the bar exam, that negative enforcement, that doesn't always work, man. Takes a unique mind to think, I'm going to overcome what people I admire are saying. I think a lot of people fail the bar because they listen to negativity. You got to shut the f the world out. Just study. Study like your life depends on it. Because in some ways it does. So bar prep became a passion. Multiple choice became just like religion to me. When you do a multiple choice question, what you have to do is look for wrong answers as opposed to looking for that one right answer. There's four answer choices, right? And 200 multiple choice on the bar exam, the MBE portion, the multiple choice portion. So if you think to yourself, there's 600 wrong answers and there's 200 right answers. It's easier to find the wrong answers than to find the right answers. So if you're having a problem with multiple choice, start looking for those wrong answers. They say in law school and people taking the bar exam, people who always try to find the good in someone have a tough time because you'll try to convince yourself an answer is right. On the other hand, people that look for flaws in people all the time, they usually do well on the bar exam because it's easier to see wrong answers. So wrong answers became a thing. Look for those wrong answers and eliminate them. Look for the wrong instead of fishing for the right. It will make your life a lot easier if you're in that discipline. What really was strange, um, that term, were my social relationships. There was a girl I was dating. We were pretty tight. We were close. You know, and she was a poor kid. I grew up a poor kid. And we kind of had this thing that we were going to make it together. We had a plan. She was going to do criminal law. And I was going to do civil litigation. Right there, that should tell you how screwed up this plan was. But, you know, we had a plan. We were going to make it together. And she went off to her externship. Now, when she went to her externship, that term break... And it was weird, you know, because mom had just passed, so her and I were talking all the time, and she had relatives that passed. I helped her through it. But we're talking like once or twice a day, and anybody that knows me knows when I've been in relationships, I'm not the guy that's going to ever chase you down or be insecure or anything like that. Like, I call you once, you don't call me back. You know, I'm not going to call you a bunch of times or text you a bunch of times. It's just not me. Um, But, you know, she wasn't calling back on those one calls and you start realizing something's happening here she's pulling away and like okay i get it 
figured there was somebody else in the picture, and there was. Um, so the partner at the firm she was externing for, he was like 35, 30, I think he was 37 years older than her. Something really, it was a big gap, right? And he was going to leave his wife for her. They got in like this heated affair. And she breaks it all down for me. She's like, you know, look, I'm sorry. But, you know, he's my sure thing. Remember her mom said to me. Her mom loved me, right? Her mom thought me and her were going to make it together and all that happy shit. Her mom said to me. You know, it was weird because her mom was really religious. They were poor now. So I understand what happened there. But her mom said to me that he is her Manhattan Shore thing. And I am her Atlantic City crapshoot. Mm. Yeah, I remember that well. And, um, you know, so she's back in law school after the externship was done. And we, we had broken up. And, um, you know, she's calling me sometimes, and, you know, it, it was what it was. I guess at this point, we were hooking up behind her soon-to-be husband's back, even though she was the mistress of this guy. It was just a bizarre situation. So he suspects that her and I are hooking up. He tells me he's going to call the New Jersey Board of Ethics and make sure that I can't pass character and fitness. And I was kind of... It was funny because... The guy is pissed off I'm hooking up with his mistress, who was my girlfriend, and he's going to call the ethics board on me. Is that like to go to for enemies? Like, we're going to call the ethics board on you. I wasn't doing anything that would be an ethics violation. At this point, though, this guy could have crushed me. He was really powerful in New York back then, and he knew people in Jersey. And it became a lot of drama. And I'm thinking at this point, you know, I got to take care of Aunt Mare. You know, mom passed away. And I am definitely, have, I have a lot on my shoulders at this point. And by hooking up with her, am I going to wreck a chance to do what I got to do in Jersey? You know, and I'm not one to ever back down from anything. But, you know, she picked him over me and then we're just hooking up and... It was over. And that was it. And at that time, you know, it was kind of just a weird feeling. Because, I mean, after losing mom, I believed at that point, after losing mom, it was you know, nothing else. No matter what else I lost in life, it wasn't going to be a big deal. And she wasn't the one, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, that happened. And it was like a trade-up situation. I don't think I would have been upset that we broke up i didn't like her mom saying that he was the manhattan shore thing that was the atlantic city crapshoot give me more motivation to kick ass on the bar exam and then there was another girl i was dating a little bit i didn't think it was all that serious and we were we we're hanging out and then she stopped seeing me because she was seeing the guy who was top of his class and she told me like hey i'm really i'm more into you but he's top of the class so you know i gotta make i gotta do this 
Like, <laughs> oops. Didn't really work out the way she planned. But, you know, top of the class at Cooley, I mean, that's like saying I'm with the guy that got the participation trophy. I mean, nothing against Cooley, okay? I I appreciate you giving my um chance, but being the top of your class at Cooley was not exactly going to open up the same doors as like being the top of your class at U of M or Harvard or something like that. There's a lot of trading up that term. It was really unique. And it was a term of loss, you know. Uh, certainly, it was a st you were stinging from losing your mom. And then the girl you were serious with, she went with a 37-year-old older guy. This chick, it didn't really mean that much, the second one, but she was trading up in her mind. By the way, neither one of those worked out for you guys financially. Sullivan and the guy I worked with put a lot of shit past in the bar. So between what I felt was lo people I admired losing faith in me or not thinking I was capable, I just decided balls to the wall in this bar exam. I'm going to kill the bar. I want to slit its f***ing throat. There's a very big case I'm involved with. And there were some things that broke today. One of the reasons I am at the office and did the poker thing is because I'm so burned out on this one particular case. The prosecutor on that case, they have said a lot of things. And it's one of those cases where we've lost sight of the truth. My kid is innocent. I'm going to tell this to you because this prosecutor, who I understand is a former baseball player, as am I. You don't need to steal signs from the catcher, bro. I'm throwing the heat. My fastball has movement on it. I'm not going to throw a brushback pitch. I don't need to. You and I are going to go one-on-one. -on -one, and I promise you this, motherfucker. You're going to whiff. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.